The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. The reason we're doing this is that we recently revised our membership material. The material that we were using, we wrote over 10 years ago. And so we streamlined it a little bit. And in doing so, we thought, you know, it's been 10 years. <laughs> Once a decade is not bad review. And so we hope that last week and this week are helpful for us in envisioning us together. If you are not a member here, we have the full booklet for you in the back. And the next step for you would be to chat with one of the elders about membership and to explore that way. We'd love to do that with you. So just contact Lindsay or Lindsay can find you. We'd love to chat further about how God is leading you for a local church home. If you, if you are a member here and you want a full booklet, those are in the back for you as well. Let's pray together and ask for God's help, and then we will jump in. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on this Pentecost Sunday, we pray the words of Psalm 119.18. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, your instruction. We pray, Spirit of God, you would grant the prayer of Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. Would you help us to that end and envision us for the privilege and joy we have together in the local church. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Abraham Kuyper once described the church as an organized organism. An organized organism. I think that's a helpful description. We are an organism in the sense of a body a living spiritual entity, you might say, but we are to be organized also to honor God and to serve you. The alternative would be a disorganized organism, which probably wouldn't serve you or glorify God as much. So we want to be an organized organism, and membership is an aspect of being that organized organism. As one person put it, you don't want to be a toe without the rest of the body. You can imagine a little toe by itself. You don't want to be a toe without the rest of the body. You and I need the rest of the body. And listen, the rest of the body needs you. And membership is part of how we organize ourselves as a body. So you find in your outline here requirements for membership, encouragements to all members, None of that is different from 10 years ago, nor is the next page our essential ministry rhythm. It's intentionally simple. Gather for worship, gather for community, and scatter, you might say, for mission. Gather for worship, gather for community, and scatter for mission. Now, that's not an exhaustive picture. That's not all we do. Those aren't the only ways we enjoy community or fellowship together. Those aren't the only ways we engage in mission together. But that's kind of the essential bird's eye view. What I want to ask with you is, why does that matter? Why does that matter for you and me personally? Well, 
Here's why. Because the local church is not to be a spectator sport, you might say. Now, I don't mean that to sound like a crotchety middle-aged man. (laughs) So hear my hearts, please. We believe a biblical vision for this organized organism is not to be mere spectators in the stands watching a game, but all of us on the field, you might say, vitally involved. We believe a biblical vision for the local church is not as mere passengers along for the ride, but everyone involved propelling this vehicle forward by God's grace. We believe a biblical vision for local church life is not as mere consumers obtaining a product as much as we want all of us to receive. Not as mere consumers consuming some religious product, you might say, but a vision of all of us being vitally engaged members, each part playing its part. And that's really the point of this outline. Each part playing its part. I think there's an appeal to being a mere spectator a mere passenger, a mere consumer. That is appealing to me. I think that would be easier for me. In some ways, I find that attractive, but friends, God has a better way. That's what I want you to take away today. God has a better way and involves seeing who you really are, involves looking in the mirror to see who we really are in Christ. That most fundamentally... If you are a Christian, you are a child of God. Most fundamentally, you are a beloved child of God in Christ. What I'm asking is, what should it look like to be a child of God in this organized organism? What does that look like? We have a fundamental identity as a child of God, what does it look like as children of God together in this organized organism we call the local church? Well, we've derived some other, as it were, identities in your outline. The first is this. We are worshipers together. As children of God, we are then worshipers together. On your outline, it says, Jesus defined this new identity when he said, quote, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father has sought us out to know him and enjoy him and worship him. What a privilege. If you know him, As his child, he sought you as one of his worshipers. Now it says we get to know God truthfully and enjoy him gladly by his spirit, through his son. This means we have the privilege, friends, the privilege of living our lives, our entire lives as worship to God, Romans 12. We also... We also have the privilege of gathering for worship on the Lord's Day, Sunday, when he arose, Acts 20, etc. Now, that last sentence needs a little unpacking. You see, the Jewish Sabbath, that day set apart for worship and rest and delight, was 
Saturday, the seventh day, the seventh day of the week. That was the pattern God gave to us in the book of Genesis. He reveals his creative work through six creative days, and then a seventh day when God rested, when he delighted in his good creation. So Israel's worship followed that pattern with a seventh day dedicated to worship and rest and delight. So you would expect Jesus' earliest Jewish followers to follow that pattern, but they didn't. What changed? Well, you may know. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. That becomes, as it were, the Christian Sabbath, this day set apart for worship and rest and and delight in God and his world. Sunday. The day when our Lord conquered death. That day when the new creation came crashing into this present age. The day when, as C.S. Lewis said, death begins to work backwards. And so the church begins to worship on the first day of the week, Sunday. What the Apostle John called the Lord's Day in the book of Revelation. So you see examples of this, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 16. But I think the Acts 20 passage is is quite illuminating. In Acts 20, verse 7, it reads as follows. On the first day of the week, on Sunday, when we gathered together to break bread, have the Lord's Supper. When we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, I am not going to do that, I promise. But that's the early church worshiping in the city of Troas. They gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose. They break bread, meaning the Lord's Supper. They gather for preaching, even until midnight, and they probably did some singing together because that same apostle wrote those words we recited earlier from Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Isn't it interesting? Our pattern is the same. We didn't make this up. We gather on the first day of the week. We set aside this day to gather for worship. The day Jesus rose, we we sing. We sing to one another and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. We hear God's word proclaimed and we break bread in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So on your outline, it says, thus we view the Sunday service, friends, as our most important ministry context. As such, it is our expectation, we believe it's God's expectation, that our members will faithfully attend. So it might be good here to ask, do I, in my mind and heart, sanctify this day as as special that way? Do I set apart this day in my heart? Oh, as a precious privilege to worship and enjoy God together with his people and enjoy rest from my body and delight in his good creation. A lot in our culture pushes against that, doesn't it? Maybe we could say a lot in American Christianity pushes against that. 
But friends, we don't want to be mere spectators, passengers, consumers. As children of God, we're worshipers. That's what we're doing right here in La Mesa Community Center the first day of the week. Secondly, we are family together. We are family together, secondly. Notice on your outline. By his grace in Christ, we have been brought into God's family or household. Ephesians 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are members of the household, the family of God. That's a rich metaphor, but a couple of implications we draw out here. As a family, we believe God intends for us to be built together in community, in fellowship, participation together. So, it says, we gather in smaller contexts to care for one another and to encourage each other to faith, love, and good works. Now, those Hebrews passages are very instructive, friends, about our need to gather as a community, as a family. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Those believers are in the pressure cooker of persecution. They are suffering for their faith in Jesus. Some, it seems, have renounced their faith in Jesus. So what's the inspired author's remedy for that most difficult situation? What's the antidote he provides for those challenging, challenging circumstances? He says in the next verse, Exhort one another. Exhort one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Isn't that amazing? I think that's one of the most profound verses in the Bible about our need for each other. Be careful you don't fall away from the living God. So... So get to gather and exhort each other. Get to gather and encourage each other. Be exhorted yourself and exhort other people because they need you. God's going to use those around you as a means of his sustaining, empowering grace. My favorite illustration of this is one I have used before, so I ask you to bear with me. It is of, from the 2000 Olympic Games. Eric Musambani of Equatorial Guinea had learned to swim only the previous January. He had never raced more than 50 meters, but by special invitation of the International Olympic Committee, he was entered into the men's 100-meter freestyle. I'm not sure that was a good idea. He had just learned to swim. For the entire race, he never put his head underwater. He flailed wildly to stay afloat. With 10 meters left to the wall, he came to a virtual stop, and some thought he might drown. But the capacity crowd was standing on their feet and cheering and cheering and cheering him on. Finally, when Mr. Musambani reached the wall, he hung on for dear life. 
When he caught his breath, he said through an interpreter, quote, I want to send hugs and kisses to the crowd. I want to send hugs and kisses to the crowd. It was their cheering, their exhortation that kept me going. Oh, if that isn't it, Hebrews chapter 3. It was their cheering, their exhorting, their encouraging that kept me going all the way to the end. That's how it is for you and me, friends. Cheering each other on, exhorting each other, encouraging each other, helping each other, being means of God's grace to each other. So why? So that you keep going all the way to the end and, listen, you help others do the same. It's not just, how am I receiving that? It's also, how am I helping others make it to the finish line? This is how we need each other as a family, in community, in fellowship. It happens here in our Bible studies, women's meetings, men's meetings, but a central way for us is in our home groups. That's how we structure for this as a body, as an organized organism. So we say in your outline... For this reason, we encourage every member to be a consistent and vital part of one of our home groups. It's an encouragement we provide. I would just ask you, friends, to consider, to what degree are you aware of your need for others like this? And to what degree are you aware that others need you like this? Am I living in such a way that I show I need others and they need me. Given our identities of family, we need community. We need fellowship. There's another implication we draw from this metaphor of family, that we are servants together. Next, that we are servants together. I'm going to be brief here because we talked about this somewhat last week. But I like how Joshua Morgan would say it. He used to say, in a family... We do things to serve the family, like we do dishes. No one tends to jump up and down to do the dishes at night, but you do the dishes because that's what the family needs. It's family life together, and that's part of why we serve one another, because we're family together. So it says in your outline, thus we desire every member to be engaged in meaningful service as they use the gifts and abilities God has given them to forward his purposes in our midst. And there's a a ministry team list on the back there. If you are not involved in a ministry team and you're a member here, we'd love for you to be used by God in real ministry by joining one of those teams and helping us continue to move forward. If you're not yet a member, prayerfully consider how God might plug you in in the future. God's good intention, friends, is for us to be actively engaged, not passengers, not mere consumers. He wants to use you in real ministry. Let me hit the third. Third, as children of God together, as children right here in Christ, we are stewards. Thirdly, stewards together. In Jesus, God calls us to think and live as stewards, someone managing his resources on his behalf. An important way we live out this identity is with our finances. Faithful stewardship of our finances is an undeniable indicator of spiritual health. For as Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. 
it's interesting, it doesn't say it's really hard, but if you're careful, you can pull it off. If you're careful, you can be devoted both to God and money. He says, no, it's, you cannot do this. It's impossible. You cannot be devoted to God and devoted to money simultaneously. One will be your master. And so we write here, materialism, selfishness, greed, hoard, hoarding, and anxiety over money, all of these reveal, or can reveal at least, that our trust and security are being found more in money than in God. Alternatively, generosity and faithful giving reveal that our trust and security are ultimately found in Him. In other words, our financial stewardship is like a window, Jesus taught, into our hearts. It's like a window into our hearts. I, I think what I mentioned recently, how one writer calls two symptoms of money sickness insightful for us. He says, one symptom of money sickness is, is hoarding for ourselves. A, a fear-based tight fist, he said. Not just planning for the future, but a fear-based tight fist. That's a window into our hearts. Another symptom, he said, is spending almost exclusively on ourselves, trusting in our money to feel important or feel validated by what we can purchase and own and acquire instead of finding our validation in Jesus. Money can be a window into our hearts, but listen, friends, money can also be a doorway, a doorway into contentment, a doorway into joy, a doorway into trust. That's why we mention here giving and generosity. So we go on. Throughout salvation history, God has given his people the privilege, friends, the privilege of supporting his work financially. For instance, the giving of a tithe, a tenth part. That's all tithe means. It just means tenth. The giving of a tithe predated the law of Moses and was later formalized for the maintaining for maintaining the temple and providing for those serving there. And that actually took, of course, a, the form of a number of tithes. But with the coming of Christ, that privilege we have, it gets mixed with the rocket fuel of grace. In the New Testament, it says, giving to support the ministry of the gospel remains an expectation and, friends, and our privilege, our privilege. In fact, God's grace in Christ means to intensify, not reduce, the biblical impulse to give generously. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And the act of grace there is the act of generosity as he's collecting for the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. See that you excel in this act of grace, this act of grace of giving. Why? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you see how grace there fuels generosity? It opens a doorway to joy and contentment and trust as a cure for this Money sickness we can all experience. It's when we bask in the generosity of God toward us. 
So we bask in the fact that God did not spare his own son. We talk about generosity. The Christian is the object of unimaginable generosity. And so out of that generosity, out of that grace, we say, oh, Lord, what a privilege to invest in your purposes. Now we become not consumers, but you might say investors. Investors into God's eternal purposes. And yet we say in your outline, however, we should always remember that our giving is fundamentally a matter of the heart. For God loves a cheerful giver. That's a helpful reminder for all of us, isn't it? For me, at least. God loves Tab. Tab, he loves it when you are a cheerful giver, not a reluctant giver. Tab, God loves it when you treat investing in his purpose is not like you're paying the utility bill. A duty you must perform to keep the lights on, but a privilege to invest in his eternal purposes in the earth and through the local church. If you find that cheerfulness is lagging, as it can for all of us, reconnect, reconnect the gospel in stewardship. Reconnect grace and your giving. Plug stewardship back into the electric socket of the generosity of God. And behold his great love and generosity to you. Fourth and last, thanks for bearing with me. Fourth and last, we are salt and light together. As God's children, his beloved children, we are salt and light together. Let me read this. It says, Jesus joins us together in local churches, not simply for our own benefit, as much as we want you to benefit. He also calls his people to be salt and light, right where he has placed them. We're to be like a preservative and seasoning in and around San Diego. A light shining into the darkness with God's love in Christ. Those two metaphors, salt and light, they're very helpful to us. Very helpful for what God wants us to be in our community, our neighborhoods, our our workplaces, our, our campuses. In this metaphor, the world is like decaying meat. And you are God's salt as a preservative, bringing his mercy, restraining. In this metaphor, the world is like a dark night. And you are God's light, his lamp shining into that darkness where he has placed you. But to do that, and here's what I think is profound, we must be in contact with the world around us. To be what God would have us be, we must be relating to those who don't know Jesus yet. We are to be distinct, but not separate. I wonder if you're aware of that. We must be distinct as believers in Jesus, as his children, but but not separate. The salt needs to remain salty, but it's effective only when it's rubbed into the meat. And then it acts as a preservative or a seasoning. The light has to stay bright and not dimmed, 
but it has to be a lampstand shining into the darkness, illuminating the darkness around us. And so we say next year, after his atoning work on the cross and triumphant resurrection, Jesus gave his followers salt and light. He gave his followers a mandate to go with the good news of what he has done to all nations. For this reason, we support missionaries in other countries, and we go to those around us in our own community and our own network of relationships. We want to be people, friends. We want to be people who are actively engaged in both declaring and demonstrating the good news of Jesus Christ to all. I think those words are helpful. Declaring and demonstrating. Demonstrating means with our lives, with our works, with how we live and care for others, how we show compassion. We then reflect God's mercy and God's grace to those around us. We also do that through partnerships like at Bridge of Hope or College Area Pregnancy Services. And we want to declare as well, declare this good news. It must be communicated with words as well. We are encouraging you to pray for at least one person in your relational network who does not yet know Jesus. Pray for at least one person. Pray that God would move on their hearts. Pray that God would grant you open doors and give you words to speak as we declare and demonstrate his great love. There's much more we could say about each of these, but I hope you're seeing God's vision for us as his children in the organized organism called the church. I hope you're, you're at least catching a vision for the privilege of the fact that God wants to use you and me together actively. He calls us not to be mere spectators, nor passengers, nor mere consumers. He wants to use you and me in the, in the game, on the field. He wants to use you and me in our lives together as a, as a family. He wants to use you and me as, as salt and light to those around us and stewards of all he entrusts to us. So we have the privilege, friends, the privilege of each playing our part right here to God's glory, all because the Father has made you his child. So take that privilege away. Fundamentally, you are a child, a beloved child of God. And remember, he wants to use you in wonderful, I think, encouraging ways. And with that in mind, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, just like the early church, so those who are going to serve us can prepare to do so. Just like they did in Troas, we won't preach till midnight, but we will break bread together, as it were, on the first day of the week. This day for worship and rest and, and delight. And we, we close this way. I was asked recently, why, why do we have the Lord's Supper almost every week? And I said, you know, there are some biblical pointers, not a mandate, but, but here's one practical reason. We love to close every service, not with now what you must do, but with what Christ has done. With that entire outline, I don't want you to go home and say, I've got to do and do and do. I want you to most go home with what my Savior has done, living, dying, 
rising, ascending, pouring out his spirit upon us. So let's pray. Oh Lord, I ask you that you would meet each of us and remind us of the privilege we have of being used by you in your purposes right here. Remind us of the joy and privilege of being worshipers together, that you you sought us. Remind us of the joy and privilege of being family together, enjoying fellowship, caring for each other, serving each other. Remind us of the joy and privilege of being being stewards of all you've entrusted to us and remind us of the joy and privilege of being salt and light, demonstrating, declaring your great love to our community. Oh, Spirit of God, would you fill us even now as you command us to be filled? Fill us, we ask you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.